Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I have a special show. This is a show called Ask Buck. Uh, before we get into that a uh, little bit, let me just remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com. Lots of different opportunities to get involved with the Wealth Formula community there. And uh, including signing up for the Investor Club or in the other uh, side of things, you can also look at signing up to Wealth Formula Network. That is the course that uh, is involved with this ecosystem that uh, ultimately results in uh, participation in an online uh, community. And that online community, well, it's not just online because we also have phone calls, uh, Zoom video calls every other week. Uh, where they don't do a lot of this sort of question and answer stuff that we actually are going to do on this show. So if you like you, what you hear this week, check out Wealth Formula Network. Uh, you can go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as far as today, again, uh, this will be an episode of Ask Buck. Simple idea. Uh, there's been a bunch of questions, some of them recorded, some of them written. Uh, I will read them or play them, and then I will do my best uh, to try to respond, understanding that I'm never giving you financial advice because only some of people who are called registered uh, investment advisors are smart enough to give you financial advice. Of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek there, but uh, they're the ones who are allowed to give it to you. I'm not allowed to give it to you, so I'm just giving you a, my own personal, humble opinion on uh, on the various things that you bring up. Uh, so that, uh, this actually ended up having a lot of questions. There was a lot of them. And so I went for about 40 minutes and then decided I'm going to split it into two because there's at least another 40 minutes left. So, um, so this week, uh, being right after Thanksgiving, by the way, I'm recording this before Thanksgiving. So hopefully you had a nice, uh, Thanksgiving and um, uh, I w- want to make sure that I get a chance to thank you for being part of Wealth Formula community. Um, but hopefully you had a nice time and you can sit back and relax and listen to this week's episode of Ask Buck when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? 
To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And let's get on with the aspect component of today's show. As a reminder, this is part one of part two. Uh, the next one will be airing next week, but we have lots of questions. I want to make sure we give adequate time and yet not bore the lights out of you by keeping the, making this into a two-hour show. So the first question from Jeffrey Cattell. Jeffrey asks, hey, Buck, I had a question about investing um, with an LLC and mortgages. I had heard that purchasing rental properties inside an LLC limits you to getting a commercial mortgage. Can you discuss the differences between commercial and conventional mortgages uh, and how buying within an LLC affects your options? Yes, I can certainly give it a try. And of course, remember, I am not an attorney and I am not an advisor. These are my opinions and they're things that I've done, et cetera. So um, don't hold me to it. I'm just giving you uh, my perspective. So uh, let let me start out by reminding um, you a little bit about, you know, the different kinds of mortgages. And they're kind of obvious, right? I mean, there are two really two kinds of mortgages. There's the residential, there's a the commercial mortgage. Now, residential mortgages... I mean, that's the kind that you get for your house. Uh, that's the kind that you might get for a one to four unit uh, uh, house or duplex or triplex or quad. But um, you can get a second or third mortgage, et cetera. But those are all considered residential uh, mortgages. Uh, pricing is obviously best uh, when it's the first one and it's your primary uh, home. But uh, these other residential mortgages that you get as a second or third, et cetera, are generally favorable in terms of pricing and amortization and, and all that stuff as well. Now, if your property is already owned by an entity such as an LLC and or you're buying it in the name of an LLC, uh, by definition, you are no longer in the residential category because you're declaring to everybody in the world that this is a investment property, in which case you must obtain a commercial mortgage, which the major difference between the two, frankly, is just that the commercial mortgages are more expensive and uh, have less favorable terms than residential ones. So how can you potentially get around this? Okay, so I let me give you an example. And again, this is not advice, but I'm going to talk about experience and the experience of others around me. So I've had a couple of houses that I um, own in Chicago, one of them that I lived, uh, lived in for a few years, and now I rent them all. I bought those houses in my name, uh, and uh, therefore, at the time, we got mortgages, and the mortgages are in uh, my name, uh, my wife and my name in this case. Uh, but after they were purchased uh, in personal name and mortgages were issued, I then transferred them over, especially after, obviously, when I moved out and I rented the place out, uh, into an LLC. So they are now deeded to uh, an entity, 
each is actually uh, deeded to a separate entity. The process that uh, used to do this is called a quit claim deed. So if you want to ask your um, attorney about doing a quick, uh, doing something like this, it's called a quit claim deed. Now, theoretically, and I emphasize the theoretical here, if you do this, your mortgage could be called. Why? Because in your mortgage, uh, usually it's going to tell you, you, you know, you, you know, this is a mortgage on you. And, um, that if you make these kinds of changes, you got to let them know, uh, in practice though, what I have found, and this is the part where I keep emphasizing, I am not giving you advice is that everyone does this, right? Everyone does a quick claim deed. Everyone does it. My dad has been doing this for 50 years and has never had a problem. I'm doing it now. And these are major banks. They even know about it. They don't seem to care. Anyway, uh, as long as the mortgage gets paid, it seems like no one cares. So bottom line is what most people do, what I've done for these smaller properties, buy them in your own name, quick claim deed. And so you can buy them in your own name, get the good, better, uh, better mortgage and, uh, and then quick claim. Am I advising you to do that? No, I'm not advising you on anything. It's just what I do, what I've done, what my dad's done. And a lot of people I know have done. Okay. All right, so that is the first question. Now I'm going to move over to um, an audio question because some of you weren't chicken. Just kidding, I'm kidding about that. Um, yeah, but audio audio questions are fun. They're fun to hear from people. So let's see. The, so I got a question here from Garth. Okay, Garth, here we go. Hello, Dr. Joffrey. This is Garth in Portland, Oregon. I understand the definition of accredited investor, which I am not one, but I've also heard a term sophisticated investor. And I'm wondering if that is different than accredited investor. And if so, what do I need to do to get that title? Thanks. Thanks for the question, Garth. Now, um, so the question in really is, what is a sophisticated investor? Well, first of all, why does this matter in the first place, this whole accredited, sophisticated stuff? Well, the answer to that, for private placements in real estate, a certain kind of offering um, is frequently used called a Regulation D offering. It's the typical structure. Regulation D, uh, a Regulation D offering allows you to move forward with a private offering without uh, without, um, without pushing it through the SEC for uh, formal uh, classification as a security. Now, why would you want to file not want to file with the SEC? Well, there's two reasons really. It's cost and time. That it's expensive. But the bigger issue in terms of real estate uh, is a very practical one. It's the element of time. So if you're doing an SEC filing. And, uh, you know, on, on an offering, it's going to take you at least a year to get that through the SEC. And uh, contrast that with the fact that when you get a building under contract and you, you know, like, uh, you know, one of the, pro the properties that we do in uh, Investor Club, for example, usually you got something under contract, uh, you raise capital, you close the building and all that is happening within three months. So you only usually have a very short period of time. You don't have time to send that to the SEC and let them mess around with it. And the SEC, in reality, knows this. So this is not a new um, new thing, this Regulation T. Uh, it's been around forever. 
Uh, but and so they they provide this as an exception uh, to the rule. Uh, they say if if you're not going to file with the SEC, you can still do this legally, but it has to be under this kind of exemption, Reg D. And these are limited. These will be limited to investors uh, that are either accredited, which we've talked about before. You make two hundred thousand dollars a year for two years with a reasonable expectation of doing it again the next year. Uh, $300,000 if filing jointly uh, and or a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. That is an accredited investor. What's a sophisticated investor? Well, that's the problem, right? So that's that's not very clear. It's not very clear at all. And it's a little nebulous. And when it's not clear, frankly, often that becomes the area of abuse. There's no clear definition of a sophisticated investor. Sophisticated investors are supposed to be financially savvy. They're supposed to have experience and knowledge and acumen that makes them more qualified to make decisions uh, about these types of more sophisticated investments than your average Joe. But the problem is that it's essentially up to the fundraiser to determine if an individual is sophisticated or not. Now, I have seen situations where people join say, a real estate guru's organization, and immediately upon paying for the course, they are somehow deemed sophisticated and start investing in other students' deals within that ecosystem. A bit shady, if you ask me, but it is what it is. Now, that's not to suggest that um, you, in particular, are not sophisticated, because if you're listening to this show, there's a very good chance you are sophisticated. You may, you know, just understand the language well and you may understand real estate well. You may own a bunch of real estate and you want to invest passively in a real estate syndication. Um, and in those cases, you might be sophisticated, you know? I mean, it is a little bit random because, you know, I run into people who are making, you know, doctors who are making uh, $500,000 a year, but they've only made it for 18 months. And so therefore they're not accredited, right? So then you have to make some judgment calls. But anyway, Bottom line is sophisticated is subjective. Um, But I think the, and I think the biggest problem uh, for this terminology is that there really is no safe harbor, in my opinion at least, that makes it really, really difficult to deal with from the side of the operator. And therefore, in our group in general for uh, Investor Club, it's very rare when we will, um, you know, not uh, require uh, the true accredited definition. Uh, and the reality is most major syndicators won't even consider sophisticated investors who are not accredited for this reason. If It just becomes one of those situations where you don't want to put yourself in trouble. Okay, so let's go to the next question or a couple questions from the same individual. So that's fine too. Okay, from Ron. Hello, Buck. This is Ron, Ron Dedden. And I have a question about Bitcoin. Um, where do... Uh, the new bitcoins come from, <laughs> in short. I know we we are uh, create we have miners and they create blocks. Uh, in those blocks, we store transactions, and uh, the miners get a fee for building a block. That's uh, twelve bitcoin, I believe. So, are those twelve bitcoins also um, getting into relation? Will end up uh, with those uh, twenty-one million bitcoins in the end, or is there something else? So that's my question. Can you help me with that? Thank you. Sure, Ron. Um, Pretty straightforward. I mean, without getting into too much technicals, the new Bitcoin, 
you mentioned, um, you know, the whole mining. Basically, uh, the new Bitcoin come from doing the mathematical work uh, to solve these complex mathematical problems. That's what these supercomputers do. Those are the miners. Um, and then there's a competition. Whoever gets the answer first, as you mentioned, gets rewarded with this fee. They get rewarded with Bitcoin. And that's where those Bitcoin are actually generated. So that's what it means to mine Bitcoin. Um, and you're also right, there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Um, you know, so that's one of the true values of Bitcoin is that it is a finite uh, thing. There'll never be more than 21 million. So the fact that some go out of circulation, they get lost, et cetera, uh, it's deflationary in that regard. Uh, the last thing I guess I would point out is, you know, what happens after mining is complete with 21 million. Well, basically the miners get paid for exchanges, um, transfers, et cetera, at that point. But it'll be interesting to see how that all turns out at that point. All right. I think Ron has another question here, and I think it's related. Hello, Buck. Ron Dunnan here with a question. A what-if scenario. What if my $1,000 worth of Bitcoin um, explodes and all of a sudden it's $1 million? Uh, and I started with storing it on my um, Ledger Nano S. Is that still a good so- way to go? when it's yeah, about a million or maybe 10 million? <laughs> or do I need to have some other met- methods in place to, to, to spread risks or to be safe? Please let me know. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, uh, good question. You know, what you, Ron is talking about is a Ledger Nano S, which is a hardware wallet. It basically is uh, something that's stored offline. Um, now, listen, uh, that's what makes it so resistant to you know, any kind of um, hacking, right? So you're not, it's, you're not online. If you're not online, no one can get to you. Um, you know, a hacker in Russia can't get to you, you know? But um, so if you suddenly end up with a million dollars of Bitcoin or more, um, the reality is that in terms of the, the ledger, it's just as bulletproof as before. I think the issue becomes when people have, you know, when they get like several million dollars of Bitcoin or Bitcoin, million, you know, multimillionaires or billionaires or whatever, um, then, you know, it may become a little nerve wracking just to have this little ledger around here, right? You may want to have, uh, you might want to have a little bit more protection than that, in which case you might consider some kind of a custodian service like Gemini, et cetera. But, uh, that's, you know, that's not necessary because one of the things about Bitcoin, one of the appeals is, is that itself, the, the ability to self custodian the stuff, right? You don't need a bank for this. And so, I guarantee you that people are walking around with millions of dollars on their ledgers. Now, I will point out that, you know, Ledger Nano S is just one hardware wallet and you can get a lot more sophisticated and complicated type things. You can even get a like a multi-signature wallet, um, hardware wallet that would require, you know, multiple uh, multiple people's keys uh, in order to get to the cryptocurrency, which, you know, I mean, if you end up with a ton of, of money in cryptocurrency, that's, you know, that's probably something that you might want to do. Okay, uh, next question is from John uh, Gillette. Hi, Buck. Love your podcast. Been extremely helpful in increasing my financial intelligence. Uh, there's been talk about uh, impending financial crisis from well-known economists uh, Dent, Rickards, and Schiff. Uh, what do you believe in the percentage chance that we go into a 2008 like financial crisis in the next couple of years. Also, as a re- as a recession is always coming, how much dry powder do you recommend having? 
at this point in the cycle to scoop up deals when there's, quote, blood in the streets, unquote. Good question, John. The problem, in my view, with those guys that you talked about, um, uh, Harry Dent, uh, Jim Rickards, Peter Schiff, all super smart guys, right? And Harry Dent was on the show recently, is that they've all been predicting the same darn thing for at least four or five years now, right? I mean, and and it hasn't happened. And um, and 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 it, when when there is some sort of pullback, because as you said, there's always going to be a recession at some point. Why does it have to be blood in the street? You know, the bottom line is that, you know, Harry Dent in our last show even said, you know, I said, it's hard to predict when, right? He said, yeah, it's hard to predict when. I absolutely admit that. So what do you do then? Because let me give you an example of the the counter risk to this whole, you know, this whole world of, of fear uh, mongering. Uh, and I'm not saying those guys are just doing that on purpose for that reason. I mean, I do think that, you know, if your whole thing is like the world is coming to an end and, and you need to buy gold and your major business is selling gold, then, you know, it's a little bit hard to swallow sometimes. But um, let me give you an example of, of what could happen. So six years ago, because, you know, I said before that uh, Peter and, you know, all these guys have been talking about for five years at least about how, you know, everything's going to hell. Um, six years ago, there was a, a company that we work with now called Western Wealth Capital and Investor Club. And um, the they they have an investor who was putting in $25,000 in every deal for uh, for the last six years. And they have a really unique model. People within our group know a lot about it. Um, a total of $750,000 was invested out of pocket during that period of time. But the principal is now worth $4 million. Now, those are pretty exceptional numbers, right? That comes out to, you know, an annualized return of about 100%. And I'm not saying that that is, um, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But what I would ask you to consider is, what if we'd been listening to that advice for five years now? If this person had done that, would they have done well? Okay, let's, 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 um, well, obviously not, because you know, if you stopped investing because of because of fear, then you didn't make any money. Is it a guarantee that they would have lost money? Absolutely not. I mean, listen, these deals are really solid. Uh, they go in there and they start to de-risk these things right away by driving up net operating income, and maybe uh, you know, maybe it wouldn't have made as much money, but would it have lost a bunch of money? Well, personally, I just don't. I don't think so. Now, listen, I'm not saying there will not be a recession. Um, as I said, eventually there will be. The problem is that we cannot time it and we cannot really quantify the magnitude. As much as people would love to talk about this blood in the street thing, I mean, the major mainstream economists and ITR economics, who I, who I like, don't think it's going to be that big. They think it's going to be stuck to the manufacturing and industrial sectors. Um so what do we do? So what do I do? I should say that. I stick to quality assets and quality areas. I create value. Um, the moment, you know, that, and then we create value in those assets the moment we acquire them, right? So that helps, that whole value add concepts helps de-risk any project by dynamically decompressing cap rates. So think about it. You, you know, you, you buy something, at a certain cap rate, all of a sudden you're driving in net operating income and you dynamically decompress your cap rates 
you have a better margin on your, um, uh, you know, your uh, over your debt burden. Uh, your risk is significantly lowered. And if you can get all of your money out of the deal with a refinance, all of your risk is gone. Okay. So now if there is a downturn and you're in one of these things, you want to be in a position where you can ride out the storm with assets you already own. And then, and then this is the important part, lean into the downturn, right? Lots of people freeze up when things go south, but, but the right thing to do is to be greedy when others are scared. Uh, so by continuing to deploy on a regular basis, my personal belief is that you can volume average your way through a downturn and get capital preservation and then hopefully pick up some really cheap assets, write them back up, and hopefully it you know you end up in really good shape. That's my own approach to this. I'm not sitting around waiting for zombies to you know, erupt out of the, uh, ground and, um, and start, you know, only accepting, um, silver dollars, you know, uh, from a monster box. I'm just, that's just not, I just don't see it. Um, as for the current financial climate, I'd say the banks are, um, and I think again, uh, most, most, uh, economists um, would tell you that the banks are in a lot better shape than they were in 2008. I don't think that there's necessarily anything that looks like 2008. Um, I think GDP has grown at a record uh, for a le- record length of time. It's been sluggish, but on the other hand, um, you know, so 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 in other words, there will be some kind of recession eventually. But why does it need to be blood in the streets? See, we have to remember that before 2008, there was such thing as a recession that you just hear about like three months after it happened, right? It doesn't always have to be cataclysmic. Um, Now, you know, talking about these guys, you know, Peter Schiff uh, himself talks about, you know, the nature of this crisis that he sees happening. And what he describes it as is a dollar crisis, and if it's a dollar crisis, what that means is it's going to result in inflation. Now, inflation is good for real estate. Uh, conversely, you've got Harry Dent, who's talking about a deflationary recession, which I have a harder time believing because of how it affects our own ability to pay, um, you know, treasury holders, U.S. treasury holders. But, you know, even Harry thinks in his scenario that, well, you might as well, you know, own multifamily real estate because the demographics would suggest that that would be a safe place to be. Now, Harry's a demographics guy. Now, listen, who knows what will really happen? Just because Harry said that and Peter said that and I said this, it could be completely something different. But if you do nothing and keep all your money in the bank, you're guaranteed to lose money with inflation, um, in my opinion, because, again, I don't think it's going to be deflationary. I've been over that before. And as for dry powder, as for dry powder, it's always good to have some, obviously, right? I mean, it's always good to have some. So it's hard to quantify how much. Um, the way I have done it is I use, uh, as you may know, I'm sure you know by now, I am an advocate for wealth formula banking um, because I like the option of, you know, being able to borrow, et cetera. Now, for this purpose, um, I use wealth formula banking because it's it, it's sort of a source of liquidity for me that I can access very quickly that it's out of the banking uh, banking system. But 
uh, how much dry powder I keep generally relies on my contribution to the um, wealth formula banking policy every year. So it's one of the things that sort of keeps me honest, right? I have to put a certain amount every year in there uh, all the way up to the paid up perditions. And so that's basically circulating as my, you know, almost like a bond portfolio of liquidity in case I need it. So that's how I do it. But that being said, I'm also in a situation where I am very incentivized to invest rather than to keep my money around or invest in anything that's not real estate. So I probably could do a better job uh, with uh, keeping a little bit more dry powder around. Anyway, uh, right now, um, so Wealth Formula Bank, that's where my dry powder is. Uh, Like I said, that's where it keeps me disciplined. Uh, But I do not have uh, a crystal ball and I don't really... I really don't foresee myself anything horrible happening. So, I mean, if I did, if I was sure of it, I'd probably, I'm sure I would just, you know, have a bunch of money sitting around. But I I don't see any serious indication of that, frankly. You know, and I should point out, I saw today, um, you know, Ray Dalio uh, came out and said, even about the stock market, that he's not, he's not, um, he's not, he's bullish still right, on the stock market, right? I'm not saying I'm bullish on the stock market, but the point is there's some still some big names not really like hiding out and shorting markets at this point. So anyway, I don't know that I even came close to answering your question, but I talked a lot. So uh, let's see here. Next question, Jason got an audio question. Buck, this is Jason Beck from Little Rock, Arkansas. Wanted to see if you could come across any good ways to utilize uh, raw land investments for a tax advantage purpose. I've got some land that is timber and some more land that is uh, pasture that we keep some horses on. Wanted to see if you had seen anybody uh, utilize either various schedules on their tax returns or creation of entities uh, to try to gain some tax advantage from those type of investments? Uh, yeah, the big one that comes to mind, Jason, is conservation easements. Now, um, you know, as soon as I say that, a lot of people think, oh, that's that one thing that's kind of like um, that the IRS hates and they write articles about to try to scare people off them. And that's actually not what, that's not totally the case. Um, the thing that IRS really hates are the syndicated conservation easements. Uh, even those, you know, they're totally lawful, but what I'm talking about is conservation easements on your own land, which really are not controversial for the most part at all. Um, so basically here's how uh, that works. Okay. Uh, effectively what you do in a conservation easement is you commit uh, your land. Uh, you still keep it. You don't give it, but you're giving up certain rights. You remember like uh, if you do any kind of real estate, you know, there's land rights, there's ground rights, all that kind of, Bunch. Anyway, in this case, you're giving up the right to develop the land and um, or or in some cases, if it's a mining situation, giving up the uh, the right to drill on the land. And if you do that, what's interesting is that and what's powerful is that you can, if you've done appropriately, get a valuation on your land's uh, maximum value if it were to be used for that other purpose. Well, Let's give you, give you an example so it's not so nebulous. In other words, say 
the alternative of keeping your horse pasture land was to build a multi-million dollar resort. And you had all the plans, you had architectural drawings, etc. In that case, you could theoretically get a valuation of how much that resort would uh, be valued at and take the deduction for the amount of the valuation that you got instead of the value that your land currently has. So as you can imagine, that could be a, an enormous uh, potential uh, tax benefit. And, um, and so I would, I would probably look into that for sure. There's some very famous people who use that. Uh, Ted Turner, CNN, that's why he's got so many Buffalo. People say Donald Trump. That's one of the reasons why he has so many golf courses. But, of course, we don't see his tax returns. So we don't know that for sure. Um, anyway, I know the guy you should speak with, and I've already sent you a connection uh, via email. Okay, next question. When evaluating a private placement opportunity, I should say I don't – I for some reason I don't have a name on this one, so I apologize. But when evaluating a private placement opportunity, how important is it to you that the general partner – has their own personal money invested in the deal? Well, the answer is it depends. Okay, let's take Ken McElroy, for example. Let's take Western Wealth Capital and those guys, for example. Um, Ken's probably a better example because Western Wealth Capital, I know, has got a couple million dollars in every deal. But let's take Ken. In the past, um, you know, where he was, um, I've invested in as a limited partner in, in MC Companies deals where, you know, I neither Ken nor Ross was putting any money in. Um, and does that bother me? Not really. Why? Well, listen, I know Ken's model and, um, he doesn't really get rewarded unless the asset performs. I also know Ken personally and, and, and know that he works hard, has a lot of integrity and takes pride in his work. He's got a tremendous track record. And I also know that it takes a lot of work to do what he does. So not getting rewarded financially until the, you know, property starts to really perform the way he performs it out um, is a type of, uh, you know, type of sweat equity. Because what you're talking about ultimately is skin in the game. Does the operator have skin in the game? And the the question really, uh, I think, is better termed, you know, does the operator have skin in the game? Because the skin in the game can also come in the form of sweat equity. Now, if Ken... Uh, in in his case, doesn't get paid unless investors get paid. I would definitely consider that skin in the game, knowing how much work that is. Uh, now, the problem these days, in my opinion, is that there is you know there's everybody and their mother is a syndicator, and you know um, you know what I'm talking about, right? So you've you've got all these people all saying, "I'm a full time software engineer, work 50 hours a week," and oh yeah, and I just went to a guru course, and I'm you know I'm. I'm taking out a $25 million asset. Would you like to join me? Um, those people are everywhere now. And, and in those kinds of deals, personally, I would never invest anyway. However, if you do, you should demand heavy skin in the game through cash. Why? Because you don't, you know, you don't know what they're going to do. They don't have a huge track record. They got full-time jobs. This isn't just about plugging in a property manager and taking your cut. That's BS. Um, you know, but honestly, I would just stay away from those deals altogether. Personally, you don't want to be part of someone's learning curve. All right, let's see. Next question I have is via email here. I'm going to read it. 
Okay, so the next question is from Kenny. And Kenny French uh, is asking, uh, he says, Hi, Buck, I'm a podcast listener and Western Wealth Capital investor as well. I'm currently working with Rod Zabriskie to set up Wealth Formula Banking Life Insurance Policy. So far, everything has been going pretty smoothly with one exception. One of the features that I really like about the life insurance policy is it offers a way to have money grow that is protected from creditors, and it really gives me a peace of mind to know that I will have a good chunk of money set aside for my family that can't, or at least is very difficult for creditors or anyone else to touch. In looking how to hold that policy in a trust, LLC, personally, etc., I found out that California, where I live, that's where I live too, has terrible protections for life insurance policies. They only exempt a very small amount, less than $20,000, presumably of cash value is what we're talking about there. But from the little bit of research I did, it looks like a Nevada trust may be the way to go. Either way, I think this would make for a good podcast topic uh, to do a bit dive into. Uh, so that's why I'm reading that, and I got Ken's uh, Kenny's uh, okay to do this. So um, I thought it was a good question. So what I did is I actually ran this by Doug Lodmel of Lodmel and Lodmel. Uh, Doug is, of course, my asset protection attorney, very smart guy, all-around good guy. I also want to put a plug in for him. If you go to wealthformula.com uh, and you go to the, – there's basically – Somewhere you can click there and dug this really good webinar on asset protection from sort of the very basic to the more complex. Uh, And he's just really, really good. So I would highly recommend you consider using him if any of this uh, stuff uh, uh, is relevant to you. So uh, here's the deal. And here's effectively the answer I've got from Doug. Uh, Life insurance in many states, uh, is already a protected asset. So part of the issue is you got to check in your own state like Kenny did. As in, in, Kenny, in, as in some states, like, like Kenny, he's talking about California, life insurance turns into pretty much just like an asset, any, um, like any other asset, and, that, and it has to be put into an asset-protected vehicle. But because it is life insurance, There is an additional consideration of what happens when the policy pays out and how that affects the estate. And for that reason, there's also an additional choice, which is uh, an ILIT, which I-L-I-T stands for Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust. So the issue is that life insurance obviously has a death benefit, which could impact the size of your estate. And this uh, must be a primary driver for where you hold it. If, if the death benefit uh, will create or increase an estate tax, then the policy should be held by either an islet or another type of gift type trust, like a dynasty trust, if the death benefit will not affect the estate tax because the total estate is below the exemption, then I would suggest using an asset protection trust, asset protection structure to hold the insurance if you are not in a state with good protections. He says, it also matters if the insured is using the life insurance as a savings vehicle and will need it for their retirement as often we do with these kinds of things. If so, then it is better in an asset protection plan. 
So I know that was a lot. Uh, so first of all, if, if, you know, you're one of these, if you have a, one of these plans, I mean, think Kay brings up a very good point. You, you should look into this if you're looking for the asset protection component of this too. A few thoughts here. Okay. First of all, um, you know, the first thing to do is check your state and see what kind of protections you have next. You know, the islet is certainly an option, right? I mean, it's, it's just, um, it's not very expensive. It's like a couple thousand dollars and you can use that. The problem with that, it's difficult to, to borrow out of. The next thing to consider is, okay, how big is that? Um, how big is that, uh, is that life insurance policy, right? If it's three, four million bucks, may not be a big deal, especially if the rest of your estate is sitting, um, you know, is sitting outside of your estate or you've got a plan to have it outside of your estate, then you can still figure out, you know, how to keep, you know, your estate stuff below, you know, whatever. I think it's it's probably going to sunset down to five and a half million or something like that for estate, uh, estate taxes. So... In that regard, it seems to me that the smart thing to do would use be, uh, would be would be to use like an asset protection trust, which, um, which is which is you know certainly an option that that Doug can help you with, and frankly, um, the nice thing about that is that you know you've got you got the protection from the creditors, and it's still available for retirement. Now, if you've got a great big you know, death benefit on there. Um, the next step really, and actually this step that I've got is a, a dynasty trust. That was the Nevada dynasty trust. And I've got one of those in that situation though, you are, um, getting a trustee involved. So you're not directly controlling it. Now I can tell you from personal experience that it's actually relatively, um, not that difficult, you know, to work with the trustee. But it does make it a little bit more difficult, um, you know, uh, to get the cash available for the insured to use. So, so that's the one thing to consider. Now, uh, Doug makes the point that you can also, in some situations, take a um, asset protection trust that automatically converts to a dynasty trust at death. So then, it's really the most flexible. Uh, tool for most for most people, so that might be the way to go. Um, I I think based on what I'm hearing, and that's actually different from what I did. But um, you know, I, it was before Doug, I met Doug. But I I might have done like a for an, I might have done an asset protection trust that that converted into a dynasty trust later. That might have been what I would have done. Anyway, complicated question, complicated answer, and that's kind of where I'll leave it because I'm uh, I've got a little headache from that last one at this point. So that's it for this week and that is just like half the questions we've got. We've been going on on for a while. So um that's it for me this week on uh Wealth Formula podcast for uh, Ask Buck part 1. We'll be back next week with part 2. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.